Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Let's read together 1 Corinthians 1, 21-24. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. The cross is a worldview-shattering understanding, both for Jews and Greeks, and of course this is everybody. A crucified Messiah could not be reconciled with a Jewish understanding. Jews are attached to signs, and God does not work directly with the human world but communicates indirectly through signs, through the law, through theophanies, you know, the appearances in the Old Testament. As the writer of Hebrews describes, angels or messengers delivered the law. It was not God directly appearing. And certainly God in the flesh contradicted the Jewish understanding that no one can see God directly, not even Moses who may have seen the trailings of his passing. God might make an appearance in fire and cloud and burning bush, but it was understood that these were signs of God and not God himself. Now add to that crucifixion and death to associate God, who does not actually make his appearance in the world, and then he appears with the cross as his end, This poses a kind of double impossibility. A crucified and dead Messiah represented for Judaism an impossibility because they had the understanding that Sheol or the pit, the realm of the dead, was actually outside Yahweh's rule. The God of Israel was conceived as totally removed from death. And the God of the Old Testament in fact, does not remember the dead. They are bereft of his help. Psalm 6, 5 says, For there is no mention of you in death. In Sheol, who will give you thanks? Psalms 39, What profit is there in my blood? If I go down to the pit, will the dust praise you? Will it declare your faithfulness? Psalms 88, 10 to 11, Will you perform wonders for the dead? Will the departed spirits rise and praise you? Will your loving kindness be declared in the grave? Your faithfulness in the place of destruction? And of course the implied answer to this rhetorical question is no. Psalms 115.17 The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. As Isaiah 38, 18 says, For Sheol cannot thank you. 
Death cannot praise you. Those who go down to the pit cannot hope for your faithfulness. So death is the place that you do not find God. And then to have the Messiah come and die on a cross. That's going to be worldview changing to Jews. As it says in the intertestamental apocryphal literature in Sirach 1727. Those who are alive can give thanks to the Lord, but can anyone in the world of the dead sing praise to the Most High? The answer is no, an implied no. Baruch 2.17 Open thy eyes and behold, for the dead that are in the graves, whose souls are taken from their bodies, will give unto the Lord neither praise nor righteousness. And so Sheol, the place of the dead, Hades, another name, for the realm of the dead is totally inaccessible. It is a realm from which no one returns. You remember David when he's weeping and praying for his child that is born to Bathsheba. He says in 2 Samuel 12, 23, when the child dies, but now he has died, why should I fast? That is, he's been weeping and praying and fasting. The child dies and David doesn't do what people normally do. He gets up and he stops fasting. Can I bring him back again? The answer is no. I will go to him, but he will not return to me. As Job cries out in Job 7-9, when a cloud vanishes, it is gone. So he who goes down to Sheol does not come up. Job 14-12, so man lies down and does not rise. Until the heavens are no longer, he will not be aroused out of his sleep. Sounds pretty absolute, doesn't it? Ecclesiastes is even darker. Ecclesiastes 9.10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For there is no activity or planning or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol where you are going. For whoever is joined with all the living, there is hope. Surely a live dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know they will die, but the dead do not know anything, nor have they any longer a reward, for their memory is forgotten. Indeed their love, their hate, and their zeal have already perished, and they will no longer have a share in all that is done under the sun. Now later in Jewish thought, in post-exilic thought, through the memory of the community of those true to Torah, God might rescue, but where does he rescue? He rescues prior to Sheol. That is, he does not intervene directly. Psalm 16, 9-10. This is David's thanksgiving psalm. Therefore my heart is glad, and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely, for you will not abandon me. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol. David's picture here is, oh, I'll be rescued, but not out of Sheol, but before Sheol. Death renders living people unclean, and since the uncleanness threatens those you know, who are living, they have, this is the part of the temple rituals, this is part of the funeral rites, is that we want nothing to do with the dead. We may not feel this so much in this country. In Japan, this is still true that people who are funeral directors or people who handle dead bodies, 
They are outcasts in the society. I think it was very similar with the Jews. Now, in the post-exilic period, a few Greek ideas of immortality begin to penetrate the Jewish understanding. But even so, it was still a hotly contested idea. And there is never the sense, you know, we get this even in the New Testament, that there are some Jews who believe there is no life after death. But so only at the edge of the Old Testament, in the kind of the Greco-Roman period, do apocalyptic ideas appear of God's swallowing up death and victory. Now this is Isaiah 25.8. He will swallow up death for all time. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And he will remove the reproach of his people from the earth. Isaiah 26.19. Your dead will live. The corpses will rise. You who lie in the dust, awake and shout for joy. For your dew is as the dew of the dawn. And the earth will give birth to the departed spirits. So there begins to be an idea, but not a clear idea, of resurrection. The second thing is that throughout the history of Judaism, the idea of a suffering Messiah, it's there in Isaiah, right? We know the famous passage in the song of the servant in Isaiah, the suffering servant. But we know the Jews weren't reading that in the way that is obvious from a Christian perspective. They certainly attached it to the Messiah. But when it talks about the servant's sufferings and death, they don't read it that way. And we have examples of this from the 5th century. It's late, it's true. But this reading seems to go back to a much earlier time. So everything suited to make a glorious king of the coming Messiah. All the, the good stuff is attached to the Messiah. But as soon as the servant's humiliation and suffering is mentioned, the text is actually altered. And so the reference to the servant as despised and rejected, oh, that doesn't apply to the servant, to the Messiah. That applies to heathen kings and kingdoms. The reference to the servant as led like a lamb to the slaughter is taken to refer not to the Messiah, but to the mighty who will be delivered to slaughter. And the reference to the servant pouring himself out in verse 12, pouring himself out to death, is altered to read that he subjected himself to deadly danger, not death. You see what I'm saying is, oh, it's there in Scripture. And from a Christian understanding, oh, we know that's talking about the death of the Messiah. But that's not the way the Jews read it. It's been said that it was doubtful whether it would have been possible in view of a Jewish messianic belief to even interpret Isaiah 53 in terms of a suffering Messiah. That's the way we read it because we understand Jesus as the Messiah. The contemporaries of Isaiah could not accept the idea that God's beloved would die. You know, one of the greatest villains in the Old Testament is a, a man named Haman. Do you remember Haman? Jews participate in the Feast of Purim. It commemorates the deliverance from the massacre of the Jews plotted by Haman. You know, he was the high official of the Persians. And at Purim, the book of Esther was read. And each time Haman's name was reached, the audience would cry, 
let his name be blotted out, or the name of the wicked shall rot. And guess what it says in the Septuagint, the term for the death of Haman is crucifixion. It's one of the few places we have a reference other than the New Testament. And here is this most despicable, most hated person in all of the Old Testament identified with crucifixion. And so it was inconceivable that the Messiah would suffer the same fate as Haman. So death was for Israel an absolute. It was unassimilable, undigestible. But this explains the necessity of resurrection. And it also explains why they reject a crucified Messiah. And the polarization resulting from the affirmation that God became man and offered up his only begotten son for the sins of the world. As Paul says, this is for Jews a scandal. This is scandalous. It's an impossible idea. It violates the sovereignty and transcendence of God. In fact, it destroys the Jewish understanding of the world. Now what about the Greeks? So we see, okay, here's the problem for the Jews. But Paul says for the Greeks, this is foolishness. And Greek wisdom has the opposite problem. In that to attain to final and full wisdom, it means passing beyond the physical world to the forms, the Platonic forms, or even the word logos is used, the kind of the abstract disembodied world. Where for the Jews, the embodied and physical realm is almost the only possibility. For Plato, the body is the prison house of the soul. And the physical world, you remember the, Plato's parable of the cave? You know, this world is just a realm of shadows. It's unreal. And he equates the body then with a prison that's to be escaped. He says, I will tell you, the lovers of knowledge perceive that when philosophy first takes possession of their soul, it is entirely fastened and welded to the body and is compelled to regard realities through the body as through prison bars and is wallowing in utter ignorance. And so the philosopher is one who learns that, oh no, true wisdom is will escape the body. The notion that wisdom could be embodied, especially in a single individual, that contradicts the whole Greek worldview. Wisdom is not fleshly, it's not embodied, and it's certainly not contained in an individual. The very nature of wisdom was to be disincarnate, to be impersonal. And so Paul uses a word here, see, he says this is foolishness for the Greeks. And actually, it's even a stronger word. He's really saying, this is Justin Martyr says, this is madness. They say that our madness consists in the fact that we put a crucified man in second place after the unchangeable and eternal God, the creator of the world. It is the crucifixion then that distinguishes this message from the mythologies, from the religious sensibility of all other peoples. The folly, the madness of the crucifixion. This can be illustrated 
again and again. The younger Pliny, who calls the new sect, he calls it a severe mental handicap. The word he uses, it's amentia. He had heard from apostate Christians that Christians sang hymns to the Lord as to a god. And then he has two slave girls tortured, two Christian girls. And he says, the result is very disappointing. I discovered nothing but a perverse and extravagant superstition. In his dialogue, Octavius, Mencius Felix has one of the characters describe Christianity as putting forward sick delusions, a senseless and crazy superstition, which leads to an old womanly superstition or to the destruction of all true religion. Not least among the monstrosities of their faith is the fact that they worship one who has been crucified. To say that their ceremonies center on a man put to death for his crime on the fatal wood of the cross is to assign to these abandoned wretches sanctuaries which are appropriate to them and the kind of worship they deserve. Only a fool would worship a crucified God. Augustine has preserved an oracle of Apollo recorded by Porphyry, given an answer to a man's question. You know, his wife has become a Christian and he's asking, what should I do? He says, the God holds out little hope. Let her continue as she pleases, persisting in her vain delusions and lamenting in song a God who died in delusions, who was condemned by judges, whose verdict was just and executed in the prime of life by the worst of deaths, a death bound with iron. And this oracle originally in Greek, it really confirms, you know, this is the historians, Pliny, Tacitus, Cassilius. They all conclude the God who Christians worship is a dead God. You understand what a contradiction that is. And if that were not enough, he died the worst death possible, a criminal death, a slave's death, the worst form of death. He had to endure being fastened to the cross with nails. And so this is foolishness to the Greeks. And the heart of the Christian message, which Paul described as the word of the cross, it just runs counter to Roman political thinking, but also to the whole ethos of religion in ancient times and in ideas of God. You know, any educated person must know better, right? The gods of Greece and Rome, by the very fact they were immortal, they had absolutely nothing in common with the cross as a sign of shame. Never could they be put on a cross. Walter Bauer says the enemies of Christianity always referred to the disgracefulness of the death of Jesus with great emphasis and malicious pleasure. A God or Son of God dying on the cross, that was enough to put paid to the new religion. That is, that in and of itself should be ridiculous enough that no one would believe it. I don't know if you've seen, there's an early painting, one of the early characters of a man bowing down and worshiping an ass's head on a cross with the inscription, Alexamonas worships God. And of course, it's clearly an anti-Christian parody of the crucified Messiah. 
Martin Hengel, a German theologian, describes that there's a strange silence in Roman literature about crucifixion. Not because it wasn't common, everybody knew about it, but because it was unspeakable. And the Roman world was largely unanimous. Oh, this is the most horrific, this is the most disgusting business you can talk about. You don't even bring it up in polite company. And so there's hardly any mention of it in inscriptions. He says crucifixion was widespread and frequent, above all in Roman times, but the cultured literary world wanted nothing to do with it, and they kept quiet about it. Philippians 2, 6-11, you know, think of this, think how this graded on people. He emptied himself taking the form of a slave, because that's what crucifixion was. Only a slave, only an insurrectionist could be put on a cross. He humbled himself and was obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So this was the penalty for slaves. Everybody knew this. It symbolized the extreme in humiliation, the extreme in shame, the extreme in torture. And of course, usually, as with Jesus' death, torture accompanied the crucifixion. And these tortures could amount to any number of things. It's said that Nero dressed himself up in the skins of an animal and he tortured women who were on the cross. You know, it might be beatings, it might be combined with beasts eating the people. But the idea is that we're going to torture and kill in the most shameful way. And in Roman times, this was only practiced on the most dangerous criminals or on the lowest slaves. You remember that Roman society, a good percentage of the population were slaves. And of course, those slaves were rebelling. They were subject, as was Spartacus, to rise up. And so one of the purposes of the cross was to keep these people frightened. And so there were people who had been outlawed from society. Those who had no rights. Insurrectionists. Groups who were to be suppressed. And because the large strata, you know, of the population, at least the ruling part of the population, they welcomed the security and the worldwide peace which the empire brought with it. And the way they enforced the peace was through crucifixion. The crucified victim was defamed both socially and ethically. There could be nothing worse. And so Hengel says to assert that God accepted death in the form of a Jewish carpenter from Galilee in order to break the power of death and bring salvation to all men could only seem folly and madness to men of ancient times. When Paul talks of the folly of the message of the crucified Jesus, he is expressing the harsh experience of his missionary preaching and the offense that it caused. He deliberately wants to provoke his opponents who are attempting to water down the offense caused by the cross. And of course, this is the story of Christianity. The cross is too much. And very early, Greek thought combined with Jewish thought, they're going to deny that the Messiah actually died on the cross. 
But the word of the cross is the spearhead of Paul's message. And so Paul's Jesus did not just die any death. He says he was given up for us all on the cross in the most cruel and contemptible manner. The cross is a bringing together of the most human events. You know, death, dying, shame, suffering. And you bring that together with the divine. And so in both Jewish and Greek sense, this is going to require a relinquishing of the world and of God as they understood it. There is no continuity or natural progression from either Judaism or from a Greek understanding to the understanding of the cross. The cross requires a shift in worldviews. For Jews, the cross is a sign that bears too much weight as God is upon the cross. And for the Greeks, it is a foolish impossibility, as wisdom transports one beyond the body, beyond the physical, and certainly beyond the ultimate shame of the cross. What is Christ addressing? Crucifixion satisfied the lust for revenge, the lust for control, the power of sadistic cruelty. This is literally the way that people were kept in line. The fear of death. The fear of torture. Crucifixion expresses the ultimate inhumanity of man. It represents the injustice of human justice. You know, today think of the death penalty. The call for popular justice. For harsher treatment of criminals. The call for retribution. I think it's exposed on the cross for the evil that it is. We must not turn away from the cruelty of the cross in understanding precisely what Christ confronted, and that is the demonic character of human cruelty, human bestiality, are exposed. Those who follow the way of the cross, I believe, are delivered from the deception of the human city, human justice, human religion, human enslavement to violence. Those who commit themselves to the city of man would put people on crosses. But those who choose the city of God take up the cross and are called outside of the city. They bear the inadequacy of human justice, human religion. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ crucified the power of God and the wisdom of God. And we can turn then to the fullness of God on the cross. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares, or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.